Welcome to the Natural Curiosity Project. I'm Steve Shepard. Thank you for spending a few minutes with me. You know, I've always been curious. I don't know why, I just know that I am. I'm a writer and a teacher and a storyteller, and my job is to be curious, to ask questions and to share the answers. This program explores my belief that why, that simple three-letter question, is the most powerful question that any human has ever asked. Every time we ask it, we challenge ignorance and the status quo. This, I believe. Curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. Something that, let's face it, seems to be in short supply these days. So thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoy the program. The virtualization of work is not a new idea. In the 1980s, companies talked about telecommuting as an option for certain job functions that could be performed effectively without being in the office. In the 1990s and 2000s, as broadband expanded, a small percentage of employees began to work from home a few days a week. During the two decades that followed, corporations began to experiment with the idea of implementing, at least as a trial, large-scale work-at-home programs. The results surprised them. In most cases, productivity and employee satisfaction were higher than ever, and company real estate costs and the costs associated with having real estate were down. And then, in 2020, the zombie apocalypse descended. COVID-19 converted work at home from an interesting trial solution into an economic necessity. Overnight, everything went virtual, as millions of employees were forced to become television stars broadcasting live from their home office studios. Now, one thing I want to go on record with before we get too deep into this episode is that calling what happened the virtualization of work is a misnomer. It isn't work that got virtualized. It's the workplace. And that's an important distinction. People are working every bit as hard today as they did before the lockdown started in early 2020, doing the same job they did before for the most part. But what has actually happened is that the physical location where people do their daily jobs is now massively distributed thanks to pretty much ubiquitous broadband, very capable devices, and unified communications and collaboration tools that make the physical distance between work, the workplace, and the office invisible and largely irrelevant. Now, before the pandemic struck, people downloaded the Zoom app about 90,000 times per day. That's an impressive-sounding number, until we fast forward a few weeks into the pandemic and see that 90,000 number exploded to a 350,000 number of downloads, a four-fold increase. So we all became television personalities, broadcasting from our home television stations with green screen backdrops. We broadcast from the beach, from the bridge of the Starship Enterprise, or from what appeared to be huge, beautiful penthouse apartments, when in fact we were actually transmitting from the extra bedroom with a huge pile of laundry on the bed behind us and a scattering of kids' toys all over the floor. Dogs and cats and at least one ferret jumped up on the desk during our programs. Kids came in for a quick hug. Spouses waved, hair grew long, and sweats and t-shirts became the new version of business casual. And the work? It didn't really change other than in obvious ways, but it got done. In fact, it got done well. And while workers groused about not being able to go to work, they didn't grouse because they weren't able to do their jobs. 
For the most part, they complain because they miss the social aspects of the workplace, going to lunch with friends, enjoying a beer with colleagues after work, and having dinner with customers. When we dig into the details of hybrid work, what we learn is that for the most part, workers are happier and more productive when they work at home. But that goes back to well before the pandemic. A few years ago, the Office of Management and Budget announced that 63% of government employees performed at higher levels when they were allowed to work at home. And in 2019, a similar study proved that as long as the work is designed properly, remote teams can outperform traditional cubicle-based work groups. So here we are in early 2022. The worst of the pandemic appears to be behind us, and states are beginning to reduce their mask mandates. Companies are heading back to the office, and in-person sales are once again becoming a reality in many areas. Caution is still the watchword, but so is cautious optimism. So what does the future of work actually look like? In this episode, I want to offer a couple of answers to that question. For well over a year, I've spent a lot of my time in my job researching this question for a pretty diverse collection of customers that range from professional services firms to telephone companies to technology startups to universities and large corporations. I've learned a lot in the process, and as often happens, I've come away realizing that there is no single answer to a question as complex as this one. But I do have a few insights that I want to share with you. One of them is a short-term view. The other looks a little farther into the future. Now, most companies are taking the position that some kind of hybrid approach to work is what they'll be putting into place as the pandemic winds down, a model in which the worker and the employer collaborate to determine what the right balance is for different job responsibilities. For example, tech jobs like contact center workers, coders and developers, and tech support may go fully virtual in many cases because A, the solitary nature of the work lends itself to that, and B, they've been working at home all along since well before the pandemic. Of course, there are going to be times when developers want to gather for in-person scrums to solve thorny problems like they always do, but those will most likely become the exception rather than the rule. Now, some of you know that I like to quote Charles Darwin. It's the biologist in me. He's famous for his quote about survival of the fittest. The funny thing is, he never said that. What he did say was that those who survive aren't the smartest or the strongest, but those who are most adaptable to change. Now, he might have been talking about finch populations in the Galapagos Islands, but the reference works just as well for dynamic business scenarios, like the need to adapt to changes brought on by a global pandemic. Now, some of the challenges, though, can't easily be overcome by the omnipresent Zoom session. For example, the option to work at home may lead in some cases to happier, more loyal employees and higher productivity, but the lack of the ability to stand up and throw a pencil at a colleague on the other side of the cubicle wall to get their attention for an ad hoc discussion now goes away. The result? Creativity and innovation can suffer. That instantaneous cross-pollination that happens when people interact fluidly in real time on an ad hoc, instantaneous, face-to-face basis whenever it's needed, that goes away in a remote work environment. Yes, you can set up a quick video conference and get somebody to log on and join you, but by the time you chase them down, get the call set up, and introduce your idea, the moment has passed, and that spontaneous aha fades away. The spark is gone. And that spark lies at the heart of creativity and invention and innovation. 
Another scenario where the lack of in-person work leads to problems is when there's a significant amount of mentorship involved in learning a job. We've all been in restaurants where our server introduces us to the person standing behind them with their hands locked in front of them, their shoulders hunched, trying to look invisible. They're shadowing, the server tells us. Why? Because a restaurant can tell you all day long what the steps are involved in doing their job. But unless you see the person actually do it, and then do it while they observe you and suggest areas for improvement, you're going to take a lot longer to learn to become proficient at it. This is a vexing challenge in fields like finance and professional services, or even tech support, where engagement with the customer is an intimate and necessary part of being effective. That kind of skill creation just can't be done virtually. Another area that can suffer is the preservation and extension of company culture. Culture is very much an inclusive essence of a company, and particularly where new employees are being onboarded virtually, disconnection can happen because of the impact of physical distance and the emotional distance that it can bring on. Work, regardless of the actual task involved, is defined by certain characteristics that became much more obvious during the pandemic lockdown, where it's physically or geographically done how often those doing the work have to interact with other people, and with how many, whether they typically work with the same group of people day in and day out, or have to engage with different people throughout the week, whether the work is done indoors or outdoors, and how close workers have to be to each other physically to do their jobs. Now think about those characteristics in terms of different industries. The hospitality industry, which includes airlines, airports, train systems, cruise lines, restaurants, hotels, and rental car agencies, deals with all of these factors in a variety of ways. Meanwhile, traditional office environments, field workers, and production manufacturing and warehousing industries also face them, but again to varying degrees depending on the position. A Python programmer sits at home in their spare bedroom with a laptop and can do their job without ever having to be in close proximity to another human being. A medical worker, or a first responder, or a restaurant worker, or delivery driver, they all have very different challenges in terms of how often they have to be with other people, how diverse that group of people is, and whether they spend most of their time indoors or out. So what do managers and leaders have to think about as they develop strategies for a largely virtualized workforce? How must organizations rethink the relationship between employees, the job, work, the workplace, the office, and life? That brings us to the second answer I mentioned earlier, which is a slightly longer-term view. One thing has become pretty clear. Companies that successfully redefine work to create that balance between the human and the digital those that heed the words of Darwin, will be the trendsetters in the years to come. So what's actually happening in the workplace that companies should take into account as they develop strategies for work in the future? First, let's get the generational considerations out of the way because they're important and in many ways they set the stage for everything else that I believe is going to come to fruition as COVID slowly becomes a memory that we'd all rather forget. The reality is that generations are different. Yes, they share many characteristics, and ultimately they all want the same things from work and life, whether they're baby boomers, Xers, millennials, or the newest arrivals, the plurals. 
It's how they want those things that varies, and companies that fail to heed the differences will quickly find themselves in a state of growing irrelevance with younger employees and customers, the ones they want to influence the most. So here's what's happening. The boomers, who are the oldest cadre in the workforce, are retiring in large numbers and taking with them a great deal of professional wisdom and institutional memory. Author Alex Haley once said, when an old person dies, it's like a library burning. Those qualities are critical elements of organizational culture, and companies must do everything they can to capture and preserve them before they disappear. Meanwhile, Xers are ascending into positions of upper management and leadership, and millennials aren't far behind. With this ascendancy comes a shift in organizational culture that is normal and natural and necessary. But with that shift comes changes in terms of the mentality of leadership, different expectations with regard to reward systems, mentorship, professional development opportunities, work-life balance, opportunities for promotion, and expectations about the nature of work. Younger people in the workforce are looking for ways to accelerate their growth, while mid-career employees with older kids are looking for ways to balance the time they spend at work with the time that they have for their families. And many of them are looking for work opportunities that support their personal aspirations. They're asking the question, what do I work for in life? Donald Krudzma is an author and an ornithologist and one of the world's leading experts on the science of birdsong. In one of his books called Listening to a Continent Sing, he said, I am eager to spend my remaining time wisely as I am increasingly aware that I work to earn money, but the currency I use to buy stuff is actually life itself. Another shift that's taking place in increasing numbers is that two-earner families are changing to single-earner families or to one full-time earner with a more flexible gig economy earner as well. One driver for this is the fact that many full-time workers aren't working to satisfy a career aspiration. They're working to pay for child care, and they've come to the realization that one of them can stay home and be a full-time parent with little change in lifestyle or actual consumable income. The gig worker idea was at first something of a nudge-nudge, wink-wink work model, because few people made enough to consider it a full-time job at the beginning. Now, however, with the technology that's available to support the platform company-based work style, jobs that were traditionally office-only and full-time can now be done remotely on a part-time basis, allowing the gig worker to be a full-time parent or engaged in other activities that satisfy their personal aspirations. Uber, for example, has been legitimately criticized for a variety of things, but one thing they got right was the use of AI-based software that allows their drivers to log on and work whenever they're available to do so. Ultimately, though, COVID was a major health crisis that caused a lot of people to think long and hard about the finite nature of life. It's a precious commodity and, for many, something to be protected and nurtured. And going back to Don Krudzma's quote, something that should deliver a sense of satisfaction beyond taking home a paycheck, that's what work is all about, given how much time we spend doing it for somebody else. So what are employers doing? Well, it depends. 
According to any number of credible studies, the number of at least partially remote workers now equals or in some cases slightly exceeds the number of full-time in-person workers, and it doesn't look like that's going to change anytime soon. One segment of the workforce that's being particularly vocal about the nature of their work is those who do shift work, whether in healthcare, manufacturing, parcel delivery, finance, tech support, retail, or hospitality. The reckoning that the pandemic has brought on has placed a great deal of power into the hands of the worker and taken it away from the employer. Some employers see this as business Armageddon. But others see it as an opportunity to embrace a new work model that creates an acceptable balance for everyone, employer and employee alike. The world of ophthalmology gives us a term that applies well to the world of business. That word is scotoma. It means a blind spot. In the case of our vision, blind spots happen because of injury, retinal separation, or disease. In the world of business, scotomas largely happen because of a tendency to worship the status quo. If it ain't broke, don't fix it is a widely used phrase in business, and while there are situations for which it is appropriate, using it to avoid challenging the way things are is not one of them. Spend too much time under the spell of the way things are, the status quo, and irrelevance sets in. One of the scotomas we find in business is the business model itself. For many, the traditional 8- or 12-hour uninterrupted shift model simply doesn't work. Parents with young children shouldn't have to choose between earning a living and being a good parent. That's an unacceptable outcome. Businesses that rely on that traditional model do so because that's the way work has always been scheduled. The result is that employees, workers, are treated as expendable commodities. In response, many shift workers have embraced the availability of free or inexpensive online training programs as a way to learn new skills outside of whatever they do during their traditional shift. So many companies are abandoning the standard, you must be here for an uninterrupted 8 or 12 hours model in favor of a technology-enabled model that allows workers to sign up for and work as few or as many hours as they wish. Between 1957 and 1963, there was a popular Western on American television called Have Gun, Will Travel. It starred Richard Boone, and the basic theme was essentially the same as the movie The Equalizer with Denzel Washington. Boone's character, who went by the name of Paladin, and it's interesting that his real name was never known, he was a hired gun who helped people who were in trouble. In other words, as the name of the show implies, he had a specific skill to sell, and people who needed that skill hired him to use it. I tell you that story because I believe that we're actually seeing the beginnings of a have-gun-will-travel work model emerging as part of the post-pandemic reinvention of the workplace. Let me give you an example of what I mean. I want you to imagine that you work for a large corporation in a traditional 9-to-5 kind of job. You have an accounting degree with a minor in finance, so you work in the treasury department of your firm, a company where you've worked for 15 years. You make a good living doing the work. You're good at it, but you don't love it. It's become a job, not a passion. What your employer doesn't know is that you have a pretty varied skill set, and these are skills that are important to you, and they're skills that are beyond what you get paid to do for your current employer. You're a professionally skilled photographer and videographer. You're an active member of Toastmasters and a well-respected public speaker. 
You're a serious electronics hobbyist. You produce a bi-weekly podcast about leadership for young adults. You teach a finance class at the local community college. And because your mother was a diplomat and you grew up in Mexico City and Montreal, you speak fluent French and Spanish. These are the skills and activities that you're passionate about. You're good at them. And they bring value to a lot of people outside of your workplace. What if your current employer could find a way for you to use those skills in your current job? Well, today they can. The thing is, we now have AI-based technologies that can easily match the requirements of a particular task in a company with vetted skills of existing employees through the creation of an accessible skills inventory. This model would reduce the firm's dependence on third-party providers. It would give employees the ability to match passion with income. It would make it easy for employees to work full-time doing the things they like and are good at, or in some cases, fewer hours if life demands it. It would create higher levels of employee loyalty. It would expand the in-house skills inventory. And most important of all, it would put control of employees' work lives into their hands rather than feeling as if they're at the mercy of an employer who sees them as an expendable resource. In the final analysis, employers and employees have to work together in a deliberate way to create a work environment that in fact works for everybody. Employers have to recognize that just because 9 to 5 is how it's always been done doesn't mean that it's a requirement for effective and efficient work output. But at the same time, employers and employees alike have to work together to create a vision of what the ideal workplace realistically looks like. For example, how do they organize most effectively in the new hybrid world? What technology-based tools should be used to create a data-based work assignment environment, one that matches a worker's skills to an immediate business need? What blind spots do we have that prevent us from seeing obvious ways to change the business for the better of all concerned? What are the criteria under which we now hire employees based on this desire and demand for a heterogeneous skills inventory? Ultimately, how do we ensure that employers are able to get the work product done for which they are paid, while at the same time ensuring that employees feel like human capital, something to be invested in, rather than human resources, something to be consumed? Everything changes sometimes because of the natural way of things, sometimes because of a disruptive event like the global pandemic that has forced us to redefine the nature of life and work. The most important thing companies can do right now to ensure that they remain whole and vibrant and productive and profitable, and to ensure that they have loyal, committed employees that help them do that, is to stop resisting the inevitable reality of change and start asking, hey, why not? Given that good leadership displays the difference between what is and what could be, a redefined workplace, a redefined relationship between employer and employee sounds like a great place to start. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode.